coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Well, for the past month and a half, we have been gathering together at the place where we did our absolute worst and yet where God does his absolute best. Jesus said, from out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And at the cross, we can hear the heart of God speaking to us. We can see what was most urgent on his heart and on his mind as he died in the ultimate example of whether or not he would exemplify God. We heard Jesus reply to a hardened criminal who asked him to remember him in his kingdom. And Jesus replied, Amen. Truly I say to you that today, just as you were with me on this cross, so when you die, you will be with me today in paradise. We saw Jesus look down from the cross at his mother and and at John, and he said, Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. Deprived of a necessity of life, we heard Jesus cry aloud to nobody in particular, I thirst. And yet more than anything else, though, on the cross, what we see Jesus doing, though, is crying out to the Father in prayer where the very first words out of Jesus' mouth before such a hostile humanity, all throughout those six hours, again and again, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then channeling King David in Psalm 22, Jesus then cries aloud and says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini, my God, my God, why? And as we come to Luke chapter 23 this morning, we hear the very last of the dying words of of the Lamb of God. Last week we heard the final words of Jesus in John's Gospel, where as we sing a moment ago, Jesus says it is finished to telestai. It is is the Greek word. It's it's the same word that people were, were using in the first century. And they would write it on a bill as soon as the bill had been paid in full. Jesus now is saying salvation and redemption has been paid in full. And so he stamps out his blood on the cross and says to Telestai, it is finished. And yet now at last we come to the very last of these seven statements that Jesus utters from the cross. Luke chapter 23 and starting in verse 44. And I just... I just feel the need to remind myself and to remind you, if anybody is in such um, a situation this morning that, you know, we come into here every single week with all kinds of things on our minds. This is a very hectic world, and if me or anybody else is a little bit distracted this morning, we have our minds on something else, that's, that's understandable. And yet, as much as we possibly can, I just want us to try to make these words the only thing on our minds this morning. In fact, I even feel it appropriate if I could just ask us, if you're able to, to stand as we hear these words of Jesus before he dies. 
Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, where it says that it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last. You may be seated. I mean, yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yes, he most certainly is the one who Isaiah alludes to in his prophetic prose as he says that he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And yet he is also Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Son of Man, who walked more than a mile in our shoes in this world. He is Jesus, the Man of Sorrows, who knows what it's like to be human. And yet, you know, more than anything, what Jesus is doing in the gospel books is he's showing us and he's showing me and he's showing you, he's showing us how to live. I mean, from the manger to the cross, his, his whole entire life upon the earth was, was a tutorial of how to think like he does, of how to see like he does, and how to live like God lives. He gives us the example of how to approach enormous um, choices in our lives where just before he appoints his 12 disciples, Jesus spends a sleepless night in prayer until the sun comes up, saying, Father, give me the wisdom that I, I, I need to choose my followers. He gives us the example of how to respond to temptations as they come our way. Where every single time, if we notice in the wilderness, Jesus' instantaneous reaction is, even though he is under a, under a state of temptation and he wants to do it, Hebrew says, still what his reaction is, is it is written. It is written and then he lives and he's a doer of what that word has to say. Jesus shows us how to respond to the tribulations of the world. Or he is so at peace during even a sea storm that he's asleep. Or he tells his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. The world is always going to have all kinds of trouble, but listen, I've, I've already overcome the world. He shows us how to respond to insults and to malicious treatment. Where rather than responding in a defensive way or with, with vengeance, as he could have done if he wanted to, Jesus exemplifies this new and this strange and this beautiful and a better way to be human in our response. Jesus shows us how to see people where no longer as others, but as a person who he loves. We're looking at the rich young ruler. We're, we're told that Jesus loved him on sight. And upon looking at a grand multitude on one occasion, it says that Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion. And all of this isn't just written to consume space in Scripture. It's, I mean, this is a blueprint 
This is a tutorial of how to live the Jesus way. And so over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, here is how to live. Here is how to respond. Here is how to think. But, but in this moment on the cross, though, as Jesus utters his final dying words on the cross, Jesus is also showing us how to die. And I mean, I get it, you know, I understand that of all the things we could be speaking about this morning, dying and death and our own funeral isn't exactly at the top of the list, is it? I mean, how many of, of you are on your phone every day calling up your, your loved ones and saying, hey, listen, I just wanted to call and remind you that one day you and me are going to die. Yeah. And it's like, hello? Are you there? Long pause. Yeah, David, I'm here. I'm just wondering why you want to talk about that. You know, I get it. I think another reason is, I mean, we, we're very busy people. We, we all go to, go to work every day, and we have all kinds of problems that we come home to, and we, we have to address those problems. And that keeps us busy enough as it is. I think another reason is, well, I, I mean, it's kind of somber. I mean, who wants to think about death? I mean, I'll sit down and I will invest in a headstone someday, maybe, maybe not. But, I, you know, I just want to live life to its fullest. And I want to only think about the things that are colorful. And I get that. And, you know, sometimes I just wonder if, at times, the reason why I'm not always wanting to set my mind on death it's because sometimes maybe America has become our promised land. Maybe sometimes you or I or, or others are just a little too comfortable with our flat screens and our SUVs and our smartphones and our flag posts. For whatever reason, it oftentimes requires a passing of a loved one in order to awaken us from the wine of materialistic abundance. And yet a person who really helped me change the way that I think about death was a brother in Christ at one of the first churches I ever ministered at, um, East Texas. We had just gotten there, and about three weeks later, he was in the hospital dying. His name was Kenneth McGuire, a very old man. And with the very best of intentions, the 28-year-old version of myself squeezed his hand. I said, God, I pray that Kenneth will make a full recovery and that, like Hezekiah, give him 15 more years, God. And that old man, you know, he just interrupted my, my prayer and he opened up one eye and said, hey, listen, David, <laughs> you're praying for the wrong thing. I, I don't want 15 more years in this world. Listen, my, my wife has died. I'm sick. I'm old. I, Pray that I will die soon as possible. I never heard that before. And so at his request, that's, that's what I prayed for. And bright and early the next morning, Kenneth had passed away. I mean, there's just so much mystery about death, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's a little bit that we know in the scriptures. We can speak about that. And yet death is oftentimes referred to as the great unknown. And as the son of a minister, I can tell you many stories that I have 
witnessed or have been around as, as my father, as well as I myself, have been at, at many um, a deathbed. When I was little, I'll, I'll never forget how my father came home with a story, how he was sitting at a bedside of an older brother in Christ. He was very old and sick. And yet as they spoke, he just kept having this huge, enormous smile on his face, like, like a six-year-old boy at his birthday party. He just kept reaching out with, with both of his hands for, for something. It looked like he was just looking at the wall, but... Every few minutes, he just kept on smiling and just reaching. Now, now I'm not a doctor. You know, it may have been medicine. It may have been old age. I don't, I have no idea what that was. I'm not a doctor. And yet I wonder, what if that was spiritual? I'll never know. My dad had another story about, in the opposite way, how a man just as old as him was, was also dying another occasion. And either he or his wife had made a comment that he was seeing these small, dark-hooded creatures surrounding his bed, dressed in black. And he told my dad that they won't leave my room. I don't know what that is. That sounds kind of ominous to me. Um, I hope when I die, I'm not going to be seeing stuff like that. But, you know, I know um, a minister... I've known him for a long time. He was in a house as a person died. And all the windows were, were shut. There was no air conditioning in the house. But, but as an older man died, there was all of a sudden a blast of this ice-cold air that, that went through the room and, and had been gone within seconds. Sometimes I wonder if something happens a lot of times when, when people die. I don't know. I'm going to find out one day, I, I'm sure. And yet one thing that we do know assuredly about death, though, is as Psalmist writes in Psalm 116 and verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And yet how precious all the more was the death of Jesus on the cross in the eyes of God the Father. And so Jesus, having finished all the work that the Father had given him to do, says, then he prays, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And in those words, we can feel the absolute trust and dependency that he had on his Father. We can hear the smoldering confidence in trusting his soul and his spirit to a Father who is a faithful God. In his writings about Jesus and the cross, Fulton Sheen likens Jesus to um, a prodigal son. Fulton Sheen, of course, had been been, um, a bishop in the Catholic Church. So you have to be a little careful with what he says about Mary and just keep all of that in mind. But I, I love what he says, though, about the cross. Where he writes that the prodigal son is returning to his father's house now. Where 33 years ago he left his father's mansions and went off into the distant country of this world. And now with the riotous sins of humanity and all of the ages on his lacerated shoulders. And as he dies before evil pigs. Jesus gives the very last drops of his precious blood for the redemption of the world. 
He now prepares to take the road back to his father's house. And when yet some distance away, he sees the face of his heavenly father. He breaks out into the last and perfect prayer from the pulpit of the cross. And he prays, Father, into your hands. I entrust my spirit. And you see, in doing so, Jesus is leaving us the example that we don't have to be afraid to die anymore. When our loved ones die in Jesus, we don't have to be afraid anymore. It's going to hurt still. At times we're going to be like, Paul, I mean, you said death wears your sting, but I got a stinger here and a stinger there and a stinger there. But as time goes by, we're going to see that, no, at the cross and at the empty tomb, this is a victory. And so Jesus is, is showing us how to die. But interestingly enough, though, more than anything, I would say, Jesus is also showing us how to die even as we live in this world. But earlier on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he says that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, lift up his cross daily, and then and only then, if he or she is going to do that, lift up their, their cross and deny themselves every day, then they can follow after me. And in the series of, of the last words of Jesus at the cross, we have seen, I mean, crucifixion was, was by far the most, most unspeakable and macabre thing imaginable. I mean, it was so horrific that you wouldn't even call crucifixion crucifixion. Even Jesus refers to it as a euphemism, where he says, and I, if I will be lifted up, you can read between the lines, lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. And, it, and there in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, he doesn't say that, that you must be crucified, but he says that you must lift up your cross and follow after me. And yet we need to understand, though, that as Jesus says this to his followers at this point in time, these guys have to be looking at Jesus like, what do you mean that we have to die on a cross in order to think like you and to become like you? And yet, as we know, though, all these years later, we, we have um, a benefit of knowing what they did not know then, understandably. What Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying to us is, is that if we want to be his followers, you and I have got to die every single day. You see, we've got to learn that this isn't about me. We've got to adopt the mindset and the attitude of Jesus that, no, 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 not my will, Father, but let your will be done in my life upon the earth. And you know, the movie Green Mile is about inmates living on death row in a prison. Where every time that a person is sentenced to the electric chair, they have to walk this long green road. We kind of have green, green on the carpet here. I'm in our auditorium kind of. It's a little reminiscent of that. And yet early on in the movie, though, there is this arsonist killer, Ed Delacroix, who is strapped to the electric chair. And a sadistic guard wants his suffering to be as long and as slow and as horrific as he can make it. 
And as Ed Delacroix is electrocuted, his, his head and his body quickly catch fire. He screams the screams of hell. And otherworldly stench fills the room and it sends everybody running for the exits in a panic drove. And as they pull the coverlet off of Ed Delacroix's head, he, he was smoking and he no longer resembled a human being. I've got that image burned in my mind and I'm glad that I do. You see, because that's how savagely I want to die to me, me, me. That's how violently I want to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. That's how tenaciously I want to love and to forgive people who have wronged me. And to say no and to crucify all of my vengeance and rage and resentment. Just as the crowds had screamed, crucify, crucify Jesus. So you and I should silently scream within us every single day to the Father, crucify, crucify my own human desires. Change the way that I respond. Change the way that I see other people. And let it be the way that you respond and the way that you see the situation. John chapter 14 is a passage that almost always comes up and memorial services. And with great reason, it is among the most comforting words that, that Jesus says. John chapter 14 has become known as a funeral passage. Where there in the upper room, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus says to his followers, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now to our 21st century ears, his going away... That's understandably heard by us usually as, well, Jesus has ascended to heaven and one day he's going to return for us. As Jesus says that I'm going to prepare a place for you, that is understood as one day we are going to heaven and he's making all these rooms in heaven for us right now. As we hear Jesus say that in my Father's house there are many rooms, in the American imagination we envision swanky resorts. And penthouse apartments in the clouds. We're going to drive platinum Lamborghinis down streets of 24 karat gold. That's, that's the kind of stuff that, that tends to be in American Christians' minds. And yet to the apostles seated there in the upper room with Jesus though. What they hear Jesus saying is Jewish wedding language. Where whenever a man was engaged to a woman, he would go away for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight months, maybe a year. And he would prepare a place for him and his new bride to always be together for the rest of their lives. You know, I believe Jesus has heaven in mind. I mean, absolutely. And yet there's so much more than what he's saying to what's going to happen one day when we have died. 
And that's because just a few sentences later, what Jesus says to his, his followers is that the Holy Spirit is going to be indwelling you forever and ever and ever. Showing us that we are his mansions. We are his many dwelling places that make up the house of the Lord, even as we live in this world. Everywhere we go, the house of the Lord is moving and it's entering into businesses and restaurants and grocery stores. As the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, says, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. With Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted and joined together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Yes, there is one sense in which we have our own bodies that, that one day, as the scriptures say, is an earthly tent that's going to be struck down. And yet in a spiritual sense, though, we are God's building. We are his mansion and his dwelling place. And so as we see in the book of Hebrews that, that it's true that it's appointed for us all to die once and then comes the judgment. Equally and maybe even more so is it true that, that every single day we've got to die to ourselves. We've got to lift up the cross of self-denial just as Jesus lifted up the cross of Calvary on his back. And just let me remind myself and remind you that even Jesus collapsed under the weight of that cross. I mean, how many times have you and I collapsed under the weight of that and we couldn't go one more step? And if God is gracious to us. What we see is that being a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, I mean, it's so much more about us living the Christian life here and bringing heaven down to earth than it is waiting around pearly gates, waiting for our mansion in the sky. And so what we see lastly this morning is that when we live in this way, when we entrust our spirits to a faithful God, a hostile world is going to take notice of this. If we could return to our text for just a moment in Luke chapter 23 and verse 47. Where after Jesus cries aloud with a loud voice and he says his dying words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and he breathes his last. We're told in verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. I mean, do we realize the magnitude of this event right here? You know, a centurion was this high-profile officer in the Roman military. We remember what these Roman soldiers did to Jesus, mocking him, punching him in the face, jeering him, hey, prophesy, who just punched you in the face? Jamming thorns into his brain. 
This guy is those guys' boss. I mean, just think about that. This, this is the head honcho here. We would probably expect him to be even worse than those guys were. I mean, if this were an American military general, he would have about three or four rows of, of patches on his uniform. I mean, I mean, this guy was a big deal. And yet as Jesus dies, as the earthquakes ensue, and as the darkness at noon unfolds, of all people, it's this Roman, you know, a pagan Gentile Roman officer who understands who Jesus is. Who understands that all of those unholy things that the religious community had been saying about Jesus, not a word of that was true. Those guys just killed an innocent man. And now I've got his blood on my hands. I mean, this is a man who had presided over countless crucifixions. He was used to the crucified cursing out their own mother as they died and saying the most unspeakable, unquotable things that the world has ever heard. And yet he had never before in his life seen anybody die like this. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Truly, I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And so seeing all of this, this Roman centurion is like, what? What is this? What, what am I even looking at right now? And the Bible says that he praised God and he gives honor and glory to God. This is way before the Gentiles get in. Man, this guy gets it. And isn't this exactly what Jesus says to us on his Sermon on the Mount? Where the light of the world says to us, you are also the light of the world. And in the same way, let your light shine before men so that when they see your good deeds, they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is what the centurion is doing now. You know, when I was little, I used to think that this, this whole being a follower of Jesus thing was, was about songbooks and about shining my, my shoes on Sunday morning. And yet the older that I look, you know, get, the, the more that I, I realize the reality that this whole thing is about love and it's about sacrifice. It's that we live in such a way that even people who have never once in their life set foot inside a cathedral look at the way that we are denying ourselves and living for Jesus and saying, truly, this is a daughter of Jesus. Truly, that man is a man of God. And it reminds me so much of a Native American proverb. I love it. It says that when you were born, you cried, and all the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, all the world cries, and you rejoice. And I mean, that's, that's how Jesus lived. And that's how Jesus died. And that's, that's how anybody who loves him to the grave lives and how they die. They leave this place better than they found it.
I close with this memory this morning. It is Sunday night, and the 11 disciples are now in the upper room. And I mean, it's been three days of this. They're exhausted. I imagine that they haven't slept a wink all weekend. They've heard something about Jesus raising from the dead, but uh, it's just a bunch of hyster- you know, hysterical women. You know, That's all men think, right, ladies? We'd only listen to you, but... And yet they're up, up there in the upper room, terrified. Because what's going on in their minds is they just crucified Jesus and they know who we are. They're going to come crucify us next. When all of a sudden Jesus, you know, the risen Jesus appears in their midst. He stands with them and he says, peace be with you. Shalom. Peace be with you. See, those were the very first words of the new world that Jesus speaks to his followers, to his apostles. Peace be with you. And that's just exactly our call to action this morning. It's customary in our culture anytime a person passes to say, may they rest in peace. And that that is a beautiful sentiment. And yet what Jesus is inviting us to is, yes, to to know that one day we will rest in peace when we die. No matter what rolling hills, you know, I'm asked to say about that. And yet really, though, more than anything, what Jesus is inviting us to is to live in peace. And to think in peace and to pray in peace and to sleep in peace. And the way that we do this is every single day mentally going to the cross and remembering what Jesus says to us there is going to the empty tomb and knowing that we have victory in Jesus and and yes, even going up to the upper room on Sunday night and, and hearing Jesus say to us, peace be with you. In these past few days, we have, you know, some incredible people have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jean Mahundro, who all the old timers here in this church who have been here for years and years and years, that is a royal name in this congregation. A former minister's wife who served God so joyously here and everywhere she went. Our dear brother Lawrence Davis. God bless you, brother. And their encouragement to us this morning, I believe, is that whether we live as we do this morning, or we sleep as Jean and Lawrence sleep this morning, Jesus whispers, peace is with us. And everywhere we go, he is with us. And that's what happens when our mindset and our attitude in life becomes, Father, into your hands. I entrust my soul until the final dying words happen to be our very own dying words. As we close, let us go to God in prayer.